I want to close out today a three-part series of reflections that I've been doing with you on the subject of what it means to follow Jesus and to be the church in a time in history where gay and lesbian persons and same-sex marriages and folks like Caitlyn Jenner are an increasingly visible part of our national landscape, our circles of community, and even our churches. My hope today is to try and offer to you some concluding principles, some basic practices of a redemptive community, the kind of community that holds fast to the Bible and holds fast to the people God loves, a community that walks, as I've been trying to describe it, a third way. As we begin this conversation today, I want to reflect a little bit about the journey that our church has been on over the course of its time. Christ Church, as many of you know, has, since its inception, had a long-standing practice of performing weddings for one man and one woman alone. We've done this out of the belief that this is the design that's given to us in the opening chapters of the Bible and reaffirmed by Jesus. We believe that the covenant of marriage in this way is meant to be an interdependent, exclusive, and lifelong commitment. We believe that this particular context is the best possible place for raising kids. We know that kids grow up in all kinds of environments in our world, but we believe that that the best possible, healthiest possible uh, context for kids to grow up is in a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. We've called our congregation over the years to the biblical standard of chastity in singleness, but we've also tried to be the kind of community where a single person would never have to walk alone, would always find intimacy, support, encouragement, and nurture along life's journey. We believe that the sexual exploitation of the weak is wrong in any of its forms. Uh, We honestly believe that the sexual revolution that's been going on now for 30 or 40 years has had some pretty profoundly damaging effects on women and children in particular. Uh, We believe that Whatever our courts and our wider culture decide, we are not going to abandon these basic biblical standards, this vision that God gives us. And we hold these convictions not to be militant, uh, not to be hateful, but on the contrary, because we believe that these standards are the gift of a loving God, one who is profoundly concerned for our welfare and wants to see us find the highest possible kind of flourishing. This has been our tradition. These are the, this is the vision of life that we continue to try and hold forth. But let me be equally passionate in trying to say to you that we refuse to reject or abandon people who do not fit neatly within the boundaries of that vision. Life is a difficult and complicated place. As we've tried to think about together over the past several weeks, all of us uh, fall short of the glory of God. All of us are out of alignment with the character of Christ or with the standards and vision of God's kingdom in various ways. There's not a person in our circle that is not desperately in need of the redemptive work of God. And we think that the church is meant to be that kind of a community, a place where we find God's help and support one another as we go along seeking the way of the Lord. So this is where it lands. If you're a divorced person, if you are a remarried person, if you are somebody that is uh, in a relationship with somebody that has been divorced, 
uh, and, and you are now remarried to them, you are welcome here. If you are a, an, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transgender person, uh, if you're somebody that's in a sex, same-sex marriage that's been performed elsewhere, you are also welcome here. If you are a person that has had in your history uh, a, a certain amount of promiscuity, or if you are a person who is struggling, maybe even right now, with a pornography issue, you are also welcome here. If you are someone who is by nature a sexual predator, you like to take pleasure out of taking advantage of the weak, you are not welcome here. You are not, there's boundaries to grace. We urge you to get help and, and, and we will be on the lookout for you in order to protect the flock of this church. But if your life, like my life, bears any of the other challenges or conditions which are common to a fallen world uh, yet to receive its full redemption, then you also are welcome here. Now, I say all of this mindful of the fact that not just today, but in the weeks prior to this, I have been trying to balance, to hold together two values of the Christian life that are always living in attention. The values of truth on the one side, what God has said, what he's calling us toward, and the value of grace, the distance that God goes to meet us where we are. Grace and truth do not live in an easy alliance. It's why most of us fall to one side or the other. We become very rigid, truth-oriented people, or we become highly gracious, license-oriented people, And yet the reality is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to live with these two things held together. Our model in this regard is Jesus himself. We're told in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, says the disciples, full of truth and grace, full of grace and truth. In the person of Jesus, these things come together, these paradoxical values And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we seek to have these values come together in our lives as well, as hard as that is. To help flesh that out then, I want to think with you today about four uh, particular practices of what I'm calling this third way or this redemptive community. I want to think about uh, particular ways of being and of behaving toward other people and, and, and toward ourselves that I think are essential for us to be the kind of community where uh, we can come as we are and then become who we can be with God's help. First of all, I want to suggest that we need to practice more assiduously perhaps than we have in the past what I will call the loss principle. The loss principle. And I need to explain uh, that principle by just talking bluntly with you about what I think is the condition in which many of us first approach the faith. Many of us, I believe, are admirers of Jesus. I think we are genuine admirers of Jesus. We like the way Jesus lives. We admire the way Christ handles conflict and challenges uh, and manages resources. We admire his way, though we might not necessarily be ready to take up that way ourselves. Uh, And and many of us first come to the faith... uh, 
as admirers, and sometimes we sit in a church seat for a very long time still being basically admirers of Jesus. If, however, we want to be disciples of Jesus, then a fundamental shift of perspective is required. And Jesus puts that shift in these terms. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to find life in all of its fullness. In fact, when Jesus was asked once why he had come, he said, I have come in order that you might have life and have it more abundantly, life to the full. There's nobody you're ever going to meet in this world who is more seriously and passionately and personally concerned to see you and the people that you love and the people of our world experience life in all of its flourishing potentiality than Jesus. He's profoundly concerned. He's not trying to to fit you into a regimen because he gets jollies out of seeing you line up with his interests. His interests are you and your flourishing and the flourishing of this world. But to gain the extraordinary life that Christ has in mind paradoxically requires losing some things. To enter into the way of the kingdom, which is this way of flourishing that Jesus is marking out for us, requires that we let go of, a die to in a sense, that's what the image of taking up our cross is all about, dying to certain attitudes and appetites and actions that are contrary to the way of the kingdom that would lead to our flourishing if we walked those ways. The greatest kind of life, Jesus is saying, is found only by dying to a lesser kind of life. In other words, the popular TV show is absolutely right. The biggest loser wins. Okay, the one willing to lose uh, so much of the excess of this world's attitudes, actions, and appetites will ultimately win a greater kind of life. Now, if Christ's church is going to be not just another Jesus admirers club, but in actuality a uh, community of genuine disciples, it's going to require that every single one of us sit on an ongoing basis with this question. Jesus, what do you want me to lose? Jesus, what do you want me to deny? What do you want me to, to die to? What of my current attitudes, appetites, actions do you want to go? And if, if I can't look in the rearview mirror and see behind me some specific attitudes, appetites, or actions that I've lost, then the chances are I'm still in the admirers club and not the discipleship community. Discipleship is what this church is ultimately all about. You're welcome to come as an admirer, but my job and that of the leadership of the church is to call you into the wonderful way of discipleship. Jesus says that this way of discipleship is not just to get us in line. It's for the good and health of our souls. In fact, he says at one point, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? All of what the world says is wonderful. But 
forfeit their soul in the process. How many of us have watched these celebrities who had everything but somehow lost uh, their, their soul? Your soul is about as important a thing about you as there is. It's the thing that goes on beyond this life. So don't buy into this world's lie that, that, that's being constantly trumpeted at us from so many directions that, that your flourishing lies in always having it your way. <laughs> you know, in having it, everything customized to your way. On the contrary, the question that we need to be asking ourselves on a regular basis if we're going to be disciples is, Jesus, what do you next want me to lose, to let go of, to sacrifice for your sake? Now, you'll notice that I ask that question in personal terms. The question is not, Jesus, what does that person next to me need to change? What does that group of people over there need to get in order? That is not the basic question that the disciple is encouraged to ask. I get why it's always tempting to make that our focus. I'm a lot like that guy, Peter, the apostle, who who, who, who found a certain amount of joy in minding other people's business. Peter was constantly certain that he was the most devoted disciple. He was expecting other people to blow it. He took opportunity, in fact, to mention the likelihood of their blowing it. You remember the famous story in which he says, even if all the others fall away, uh, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never deny you. And amazingly, even after Jesus has watched Peter fail on that promise three successive times, and even after Jesus has restored Peter to his fellowship, forgiven him for it, Peter's first response, John chapter 21 is to turn around and see John going by and saying, what's his future? What's going to be going on with him? And the words of Jesus are so instructive. Jesus says to Peter, what is that to you? What is that to you? You must follow me. Elsewhere, Jesus made the point even more clearly, maybe painfully clearly. At one point, Jesus says in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? This is intended to be comical, right? This is an amazing vision Jesus is giving us. You hypocrite, Jesus says. You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. I call this the log principle. We need to remember the loss principle, and secondly, the log principle. And the simple practice here is to focus on your own sin first. A basic discipleship practice. Focus on your own sin first. This is not some live and let live liberality that I'm recommending here. This is Jesus talking. Okay, this is is the master of the universe, the creator of it all, talking to us. And we need to deal once and for all with this. Because this particular commandment of Jesus, we are ignoring about 24 hours a day, most of us. I, I confess to this myself. We're ignoring this commandment of Jesus. 
But according to him, the log of pride and anger or gluttony or lust or sloth or envy or whatever other sin is clogging our eyes so much that we can't even see ourselves in the mirror accurately, this, 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 this thing that's going on with many of us in terms of our own character makes us the last possible people that ought to be attempting moral surgery on other people. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Deal with the log. The most harsh words that Jesus ever speaks in the Bible are not to your rank-and-file form of sinner. The harshest words Jesus ever speaks are to hypocrites, are to people that are trying to do moral surgery when they are sick themselves. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, says Jesus. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. There are people coming, seeking after God, trying to find his truth and his grace. And you're so self-righteous, you're slamming the door in their faces, Jesus says. Woe to you, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of everything unclean. Do you think your father in heaven doesn't see what's going on inside of you? The thought life, the patterns, the practices... You think he doesn't see? You give a tenth, says Jesus, a tithe, but you neglect the more important matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus is speaking to the religious community here. He's speaking to those who attempt to teach the law. So when you and I are confident that we're no longer hypocrites, then I think we should really work hard on doing moral surgery on the people around us. But even then, Jesus cautions us to take a humble approach. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. He's not saying don't use discernment. He's saying don't use condemnation. Do not judge or you too will be judged for the same way you judge others you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the question, practically speaking, is how much mercy do you want to be shown to you? How much grace? How much judgment? The truth, of course, is there are times when it feels like we have to be discerning and we have to take steps to lean into the sins and the the malformations of other people's lives. There's not a parent in this room that doesn't understand that there are these moments where, where it's actually love that compels you to start messing with your kids' lives or with your best friend's lives. Where it would be the height of lack of love if you didn't say something. If you, if you didn't get involved in some way to, to address an attitude, an action, an appetite that you could see was injuring that person or that, that if left unchecked was going to injure other people. We all understand that. It's how we come at that particular engagement that makes all the difference, I think. And in the eighth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus teaches us how. There's this marvelous story, you probably know it well, in which Jesus is going along on his journeys. He, he, is, um, he hears the sound of a big hubbub happening. And so he goes down the street, he turns around a corner, he enters into a clearing, and there in the clearing there's a whole mob of people. 
and, and, and they're on one side, and at a distance away, there's this woman standing there or kneeling there. We're not told exactly how it's set up, but this much we do know. The crowd has caught the woman in adultery. Where the guy is, I don't know, because we know it takes two to tango. No adultery without a pair. But it's the woman now who's the focus of the crowd's attention. And they're about to take out on her the law's exact revenge. The penalty of the law for adultery is stoning. And they're reaching around to pick up stones. They're trying to get good round ones that you can really peg. And this woman is cowering there waiting to come to her end for her sin. And Jesus walks out into the clearing and steps between the crowd and the woman. And everything goes quiet. And Jesus says, as John 8 reports, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. At that, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Why did the older ones go away first? They had the longer rap sheets, right? They had a lot more. They had a lot more that if it was pulled out, uh, they would recognize might make them worthy of judgment. And so the older ones went first, and the crowd melted away until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus, who had gotten down on the ground, uh, maybe even with her, was uh, stood up, straightened up, the Bible says, and asked her, Woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. No one. Then, neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Go now and leave your life of sin. One of the most common myths and points of confusion for many of us in the Christian community is this fear that if we don't condemn, we'll be appearing to condone. Have you ever struggled with that? I've had that conversation even this past week with people who feel like, gosh, you know, I see these behaviors. Unless I really speak out against them, I'm condoning them. That's a myth. It is possible to lead someone into life change without condemnation. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to show us here, okay? I call this the leadership principle, the third key practice of of redemptive communities. There are people in our world, in our circle of acquaintance, who need to be led out of a life of one kind or another into the better life. It may be a, 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 a life of sexual immorality. It may be a, li- a life of, of greed and selfishness. It may be a life of, of character assassination and gossip. It may be any one of the things we talked about last week. People need leadership to leave behind sometimes these old ways and enter into the better kind of way. But here's the key part. And if you haven't been paying attention thus far, please sit up, take a deep breath, and get this part, because this is maybe the most important thing I'll say through the whole message. If we want to be those leaders, we need moral authority. If we want to lead people to make life change, we need moral authority. And the people who have moral authority will tend to be people who exhibit one of the following three kinds of characteristics, one or more of the following three characteristics. First, they're examples of holiness. They have a beautiful life. 
The other person looks at the life of that individual that's speaking to them. And they're drawn to that life. They would like to have that kind of life. They're they're willing to listen to what that person says because there's something exemplary about that person that draws them. It's that holiness. Holiness is the most beautiful thing in the world when it's present. Or secondly, those people have undergone profound transformation. Transformation is the second qualifier. They've been through life change themselves. They've gone from here to there. They've gone through the tough journey of making a substantial change in their lives. And therefore, they they know how to guide somebody else through that. And, and, and And when that person speaks to somebody who needs to make the life change, they feel hope because they can see how this person has been successful in making a change. Or thirdly, they love the other person so fiercely that, 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 that old adage, hate the sin, love the sinner, doesn't sound like a platitude. I mean, they know it. Even if the, what the person is saying to them is a challenging thing, they know that person loves them so desperately and deeply that it could only be coming from a heart to help and not from self-righteousness that the person is speaking. I, was, I had conversations all the time with people who say, how should I, how should I respond to my child, I just discovered they're gay or they're lesbian. And my answer is, you love them. That's how you respond. And what should I do? They're bringing their partner home to our house. And my response is, you love the people your loved ones love. That's your calling. You love them. If you think about it, Jesus had the moral authority to lead on all three of these fronts. He was the definition of holiness. Nobody has ever lived a life more holy and beautiful than Jesus. He had undergone the ultimate transformation, if you think about it, right? Read Philippians 2 this afternoon. And think about the journey of change that he went through to go from heaven to earth. And he loved like no other. He he loved with a fierceness that was not only willing to step in between the mob and the the lone sinner. He loved with a passion that made him stretch out his arms and, and plead for the forgiveness of the very people that were crucifying him. And so there's a reason why he has been the one across time that has been more able to lead people to life change than anyone else. Dallas Willard once told me when I asked him a question about how, I, how, we, how do you deal with, with the whole gay, lesbian gay thing? And he says, just bring people to Jesus. He's the one that pulls everything straight. I don't think he meant that in the gay straight terms. He meant Jesus is the one that makes everything as it should be. Lead them to Jesus. So how about you and me? On this test of moral authority, these qualifications for moral authority, how are we doing with holiness you know, what, what, what's the transformation in our lives that we can point to that, that demonstrates that we will be helpful guides to, to other people? And, and how, how deeply are we loving? How radical is the love we show? I, 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 I think that sometimes today we just get in the habit of throwing rocks at sinners. It's a popular sport. It's not a difficult sport. You know, a lot of sports are difficult. Golf, that's a difficult sport. Throwing rocks at sinners is, is child's play. All of us can do it. But, but honestly, I'm going to ask just the effectiveness question. 
how many of us have successfully condemned somebody else into life change? I mean, really, how many people can we think of? We really help them radically alter their life for the good because we condemn them so powerfully. You know, do we want to be right or do we want to be righteous in the way that Jesus models? I think the church today is clamoring, is hungering, is desperately wishing it had the kind of cultural authority it once had in American life. We're mad that people have pushed the church to the margins and now they're criticizing us and condemning us. We can't believe this has happened. And we think that if we just get more shrill and just get more hard-fisted, we can take America back. Friends, the only way we're getting cultural authority again is when we get moral authority again. When the quality of the way we live is so Jesus-like that people can't help but respond to it the way they did to the life of the early church. And that's where I want to end today. I want to look back at the life of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, we get a picture of the life of that church. We see a community of people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They are all in to a new way of being and doing. In a scattered, fragmented society, and Roman culture was, this is an amazing kind of community. These are people that are slave or free, rich and poor, uh, from many nations. The Pentecost tells us that. And yet they're coming together, and they're, they're leaning into a new way of life. They are losing more and more of their old identity, and they're taking on a new identity. This is a group of people that do not see themselves as superior people. They are a fellowship of sinners. They're each seeking their own sanctification. All the believers were together, we're told, and they had everything in common. And there's a holy beauty to this life. There's just an extraordinary evidence of transformation in this community. There's an amazing sort of love going on. We're told that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They see a need. They start looking around. What can I lose? What can I give up to meet the need? And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God. This is a joyful community. And this lifestyle has a stunning moral authority on the people who see it. This is Roman society. This is is, is a society that has, has lost its moral boundaries, and yet it has a profound, this lifestyle has an effect on the society of that time. So much so that we're told that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. You hear that? You've got Roman people and Jewish people alike. And they're looking at the church and they're not saying, get them out of our community. They're, 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 people are being drawn. I mean, the authorities are trying to get rid of them. Right? They are persecuting them. But the common folk are saying, tell me more. They're, they're seeing an incandescent quality of life here. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I hope you got that last part, because that's really critical here. The text says that the Lord filled their ranks with those who were being saved. Who were being saved. 
The implication here is that nobody that's entering into the life of this church is a finished product. Nobody that's walking into the circle of the Christian community has got their act all together. I mean, remember where these people started from. They came from Roman society, a a crazy Roman society, and a very broken Jewish society. It's going to take a lot of time for these people to get conformed to the full image of Christ. It's going to take a long time for these people to to be really living into the fullness of the implications of the kingdom of God. And I call this the long road principle. It's the last one that I think is critical to us. It's the long road principle. And we need to practice this one if we are going to be a redemptive community, especially or deeply ingrained in complicated issues like human sexuality are concerned. Let's face it. If we are disciples of Jesus, then we are all in the lengthy process of being saved. Right? We were instantaneously justified by faith. The moment that you said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that your sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to forgive me of my sins. I come to you. That moment we were instantaneously justified by faith, made right with God, set on the journey with him. But now that we're on a journey with him, brace yourself. It's a long one. Sanctification, the process of being made holy, of becoming Christ-like, it takes a long time, a very long time. Some of us have already seen dramatic life changes on that journey. Others of us, we just have seen these incremental changes in all sorts of different areas. For some of us, there are areas of our lives, there there are particular things about our attitude, appetites, or actions that will probably not get fixed in this life. They, They will await full transformation when we stand with Jesus in glory. And so as we're around people, who aren't finished yet, it will be tempting to pick up a rock. I'm saying, let's reach out our hand instead. Let's hold on to God and one another. Let's travel on this long road alongside of one another. Let's be a redemptive community together, a community that holds fast to the Bible, holds fast to people, and walks humbly, perseveringly, courageously, this third way. Would you pray with me? Great God of grace and truth, we come before you today, humbly seeking your power for living. We need your redemptive power to move in us. We long to see your redemptive power move through your church and out into this world. And in service of your great purposes, we simply ask you today to help us. Help us ask regularly what you would have us lose, deny, or die to, and then respond to what you say. Give us the humility and clarity to address the log in our own eye before we attempt to do surgery on the sin of others. Inflame in us, Lord, a fresh passion to earn the moral authority needed to speak in a life-changing way where leadership is so greatly needed. And give us the patience and the perseverance, God, 
to walk with one another the long road toward our final salvation. Through the name and by the power of Jesus we pray. Amen.